Okay, the title of the sermon this morning is The Gospel, Cross, and Wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 31 is our context, but we're really mostly going to be looking at one verse, as you will see. Two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of being knit together in one mind, and as such, not having divisions uh, among us in the body of Christ, like those that developed in Corinth with the Corinthians. We also talked about the fact that things can easily go south in regard to the gospel if um, things regarding the gospel are misunderstood or preached, taught incorrectly. And I gave you examples of uh, men and the methods that they use to manipulate the gospel today and in so doing cause these divisions in the body of Christ. And lastly, we looked at how to counter their error and influence by, quote-unquote, handling accurately the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 15, popular scripture I'm sure you're all aware of. And as Christians and in local bodies of believers like our own here at Abiding Grace Church, we need to agree on the fundamental nature of the gospel. Our unity and our faithfulness to Christ depends on us being on the same page in regard to our definition of the gospel and how to present the gospel. This is true for us today, just as it was true for the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians back in Paul's day. So much so that after Paul chastises the Corinthians in in verses 13 through 16 for their, what, disunity, um, as evidenced by their choice to try and align themselves with their favorite respective leaders or teachers. Paul says in verses 17 and 18, if you look there in your Bibles, he says, quote, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, Paul is saying that divisions in the church of this nature can make the preaching of the cross void of its power. And in the body of Christ, these divisions can lead to forsaking the very basics of the gospel message, basics that should incessantly be front and center, but instead become overshadowed by what? These squabbles and factions that can develop in a local body of believers. 
Anyone or anything that impedes Christ's faithful servants from being devoted to preaching this simple yet profound gospel message must be, should be dealt with immediately so that unhealthy objects of devotion, okay, whether human or not, can be removed from the body of Christ so as to not hinder or obstruct the primary focus of preaching the gospel. Christ alone should be the object of our faith, hope, and devotion, period. Moreover, Paul says, I'm not using cleverness of speech to preach the gospel because that's not what Christ called me to do. We see cleverness of speech make the cross of Christ void of its power every day on full display as it flows freely out of the mouths of so-called pastors and evangelists. Just turn on Christian TV or radio. It's all right there. Or you can just, you know, pick up the best-selling Christian book, typically, and you'll see it there, too. We must remember, church, our job is not to put lipstick on a pig. If you aren't familiar with that phrase, it means, and I'm quoting, making superficial or cosmetic changes to a product in a futile effort to disguise its fundamental failings. And I can assure you, the gospel has no fundamental failings, but these people act like it does and like it needs them to dress it up. They act as if the simple gospel isn't appealing enough, and so they have to put lipstick on it with all sorts of flashy approaches and sensational claims. Am I lying? No. Some of them don't even realize that by doing these things, they are robbing the true gospel of its power and making the cross of Christ void, just like Paul said. Very few people get genuinely and authentically saved by the lipstick-laden gospel. Very few. Sure, they might, they might come down to the imaginary altar, come down to the altar, say the sinner's prayer, but then where are they in six months? They're nowhere to be found because trials and tribulations set in and they don't know how to deal with them. So which gospel does our God approve of is the question. How should this gospel that Paul speaks of be preached? How do we make sure the cross is not void of its power? Let's take a look-see, shall we? Now, 
Please don't try this at home. This is very, very difficult and can only be done by trained professional evangelists like me. Okay. In Acts chapter 8, verse 5, where did Philip begin with his evangelistic technique? Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Where did Philip begin with his evangelistic technique? The Bible says that, quote, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. What a novel idea, Philip. He started out with Christ. What an absolute genius. And what happened when Philip proclaimed Christ to them? Verse 12, they believed Philip's preaching of the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized, men and women alike. Wow. And if you look at chapter 8 in Acts, verse 35, go from 5 to 35, surely Philip saw the need for some lipstick on the gospel by then, don't you think? It says, and Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, Isaiah 53, 7, he preached Jesus to them. And the eunuch said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the eunuch didn't know what hit him with that souped-up hot rod gospel that Philip was preaching. Man alive, give me some of that. Philip must have used cleverness of speech to lead two people to Christ in a few chapters. Okay? We're on a roll now. What about the newly saved guy in Acts named Saul? Now, he had a tough crowd. Surely he had to put some lipstick on the pig. Acts 9, beginning in verse 19, says, Now for several days he, Saul, was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Then a little further down your page in verse 22 of that same chapter, Luke says that Saul was quote, confounding the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Do you see a pattern? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. No lipstick on the pig. You don't need to dress it up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, we preach Christ, Scott read it, Crucified to the Jews' a stumbling block and to the Gentiles' foolishness. We preach Christ crucified. Then he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says, For we do not preach ourselves, 
but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. In Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. That's it. Finito, finished. Remember our text. Let's go back to the text just to make sure I haven't deviated from it yet. Okay? For Christ did not send me to baptize, Paul said, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Thus far, I pray that you are seeing the word gospel and the word cross in our text. Because it's everywhere. Gospel and cross. Yeah, there's synonyms for those words, but they're everywhere in 1 Corinthians. The gospel is first and foremost Christ. Okay? What else does this gospel of Paul's consist of in our text besides Christ? Remember what I said earlier, that we need to be on the same page if we are going to avoid divisions in the body of Christ, we need to understand our priorities, i.e. that the gospel comes first, and we need to understand and agree on the definition of this gospel that Paul is referring to. People have different definitions of the gospel. To be on the same page, we need to be on the same definition. Paul says there in verse 17, repetition is the mother of all learning, not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ should be made void. Before we talk about cleverness of speech, let's first talk about the cross for a moment. Okay? The first thing that I would like you to see in our text is that in verse 17... Paul does not just use the word cross by itself. The cross has an owner or a possessor or a keeper, and his name is Christ. Paul says it, the cross of Christ, he says. That's his cross and no one else's cross. Jesus bore that cross, John nineteen seventeen, And he bore our sins in his body on that cross. 1 Peter 2, 24. The man who knew no sin took verbal abuse from a sinful criminal as he hung on that cross, as Jesus hung on that cross. Luke 23, 39, the soldiers ridiculed Jesus while he was dying on that cross, coming up to him and mocking him, saying, hey, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself off your cross, Luke 23, 36 and 37. The chief priests stood there all indignant mocking Christ while he was 
draped over, dying on that cross. He saved, his, he, he saved others, but he can't save himself, they said. Mark 15, 31. And then in Matthew 27, 39 and 40, while the women who gave birth, or I'm sorry, while the woman who gave birth to him stood by helplessly as he gasped for his very next breath on that cross and who had to listen to passers-by hurling abuse at her dying son and saying, if you are the son of God, come down from that cross. Then, while the blood, his blood, Christ's blood and sweat dripped on the ground from high atop that cross, the soldiers divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what they should take or what each of them should take. Mark chapter 15, verse 24. And what was our Christ's response as he hung there on his cross, suffocating and baking in the sun, the sweltering heat, which, by the way, he created, laying there on that cross amidst all of these enemies, hurling insults and abuse at him, making fun of him. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Luke 23, 34. Why? Because that's what the gospel is all about. Forgiveness and reconciliation. The enemies of God can now be reconciled to the Father by the sacrificial way of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit because of Christ's cross. Forgiveness is offered to God's enemies by way of the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Praise be His name. Because without the shedding of blood, folks, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9, 22. Jesus said in Matthew Chapter 26, verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For what? The forgiveness of sins. Poured out where, Lord? On the cross. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. John 19.34 You see, the cross just isn't about death. It's about death, or I should say, it's about a death with much shed blood. And guess what? The blood that Jesus shed on that cross not only washes your sins away, but it's also a means of currency 
as Paul was leaving Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says to the pastors there, be on your guard, be on guard for yourselves and the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he, Jesus, purchased with his own blood. It has purchasing power, that cross, the blood. Yea, First um, Corinthians chapter 6, 19 through 20 says that you and me, <clears throat> you're not your own. You've been bought with a price, right? And God the Father purchased you with his son's blood. Think about that. Hey, let me purchase you for eternity. What form of currency are you going to use, Lord? Oh, my son's blood. And there are no returns, church. But there is a layaway plan. Did you know that? If you haven't been saved yet, God has laid away his son's blood for you from before the foundations of the world. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, that God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined you to adoption as his son or daughter through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will to the praise and glory of his grace which he freely bestows upon all of his elect sons and daughters in Christ. And verse 7 of that same chapter says that in Christ you have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of your sins according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us. He made the final layaway payment on that cross. The inheritance is now yours. Ephesians 1.11 The claiming ticket to your inheritance is faith. And he even gives you that for free. If you believe right this minute that Jesus shed his blood on that cross for your sins, died on that cross so that you can be reconciled with the Father. If you believe he arose from the dead on the third day, then you are declared righteous before God. You are saved from his wrath and from eternal separation from him. If you have faith in Christ, you are now a new creature in him, in Christ. The old you and all of the sin on a stick that went with it is gone. And when God the Father looks at you now, 
He sees Christ's perfect, sinless righteousness all over you. That's all he sees. You've got to grasp that. If you're going to live a life free of depression, you just have to grasp that and you won't be depressed anymore. He sees Christ's perfect righteousness when he looks at you. He does not see your sin. Your sin has been washed away. None of your sins are left. They're gone. As far as the east from the west, as you've heard so many times, but it bears repeating. That's who you are in Christ if you're saved. You're clean. You've been justified by his blood. Romans chapter 5 verse 9. So what do we have so far in our study of this one um, verse? 1 Corinthians 1.17. Well, for a summary of what we have packed in that one verse, hop over to Colossians in your Bible. Colossians chapter 1. And we'll start with verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure. Remember, we had read in Ephesians, it was the kind intention of his will. Here we read, it's his good pleasure. It was his good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him that is in Christ. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. There's that ownership again, the blood of his cross. Through him, through Christ, I say, Paul says, whether things on earth or things in heaven, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and have not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So you've been reconciled through his fleshly body and his death, and now you are holy and blameless. Even when you don't feel holy and blameless, you're holy and blameless blameless in the eyes of the Father. So that pretty much sums up everything we've been talking about this morning. Do you see God's wisdom in all this? I mean, from before he created the universe. I 
especially his wisdom as it pertains to the plan of salvation. His son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we move on from verse 17, next week, I'd like to mention one other thing in relation to the gospel as we are defining it against the backdrop here this morning of 1 Corinthians 1. And that other thing is the resurrection. We need to be keenly aware of the fact that the resurrection of Christ is part of everything else we talked about today that pertains to Christ's finished work in procuring our salvation. Okay? Paul doesn't talk about the resurrection in detail until chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and so we will pick the resurrection up there. But right now, I just want you to have it in the back of your mind that, yeah, Jesus did die on that cross. He shed his blood for your sins, and he died, but he rose. And that resurrection is part of the whole salvific plan, obviously. And another thing that I would like you to have on the back burner of your mind is that in Western culture, we tend to put more of an emphasis on Christmas and the birth of Jesus than we do Easter and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's largely, obviously, because we're greedy <laughs> capitalists who... No, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with capitalism. I'm just saying that we like to commercialize Christmas, right? Um, you can commercialize Christmas and make more money off of it than you can off of Easter. I think that's why. But here's what I want you to remember. In Eastern Bloc countries um, and, and in Latin America... The resurrection is more important to them, to those Christians, than the birth of Christ, i.e. from a holiday perspective. They put a lot of emphasis to the point of parades and all kinds of things on Resurrection Day, on Easter. And that's something that we need to keep in mind as we go through 1 Corinthians because the entire book is going to culminate in resurrection theology. And it's going to be a beautiful thing when we get there. We're not there yet, but when we get there, it will be. So put that on the back burner of your mind. Next week, we will talk about uh, the wisdom and folly or foolishness as it pertains to the gospel in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Let's pray.